have a lot of content to work through this morning, and so I'm going to jump right in here. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew, or not Matthew, whoopsie, Mark. It's like the 37th week in Mark, and here I am. Uh, Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. We are just slowly working our way through Mark's gospel. We will take a break over the summer, but we will pick back up late summer, early fall, and and finish Mark, Lord willing, this fall by the end of November. But for now, we are working our way through Mark. I should also say that we're going to take a break from Mark over the next couple of weeks. We'll be doing a little mini-series through Isaiah 52 and 53 for Good Friday, Easter, and then the Sunday after Easter as well, just making our way through Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, as we look at the suffering servant passage of Isaiah that tells us about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, Easter, and then the Sunday after Easter. This morning, we're looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And I have to admit my, my, my trembling before our text and subject matter this morning. Of course, there should always be trembling, a sense of trembling whenever a pastor approaches the pulpit. And I'm charged with heralding the Word of God from this place, and that's always a, a sacred and weighty thing. But this morning, our subject matter presses this, this reverential fear into my heart into a, in, in a particularly acute way. And, and, and it's not that I don't believe and submit to Christ's words here. It's, it's not because I fear being maligned for what I say here or because people might leave the church. It's not because what we're about to explore is culturally taboo. It's because the subject that we're about to explore here is complex. It's complex and it has affected probably the majority of the people in this room in one way or another with all of its complexities. The the subject we're about to consider has been the cause of many in this room being deeply wounded and broken and pained. It's something that has led to the confusion and tears and brokenness of many children in our society and world. It's something that has devastated individuals and communities and nations. It's something that has broken the hearts of many in this room. I'm talking about... Divorce, divorce, a, a, a marriage breaking, a family breaking, a one flesh union being torn in two. And it's complicated. There are times wherein divorce happens as a result of two parties possessing their fair share of blame, wherein they cannot reach reconciliation because of planks in both their eyes and they both need to repent and seek the Lord. Yet there are also times wherein there's a clear perpetrator and a clear victim. 
And it's sometimes the victims of divorce that end up feeling a deep sense of shame and guilt and embarrassment as a result of the divorce. Other times, the the perpetrators have repented and turned to Christ from the sin that led to their divorce, and thus all their sins are washed away in the cleansing crimson of Jesus Christ. But they just can't seem to, to let go of that nagging sense of guilt and shame over it. Sometimes someone who has sought to divorce has done so because they felt it was their only option for, the, for, the, for their safety or the safety of their children. And sometimes those who have done so for those reasons still can't shake the feeling that they've sinned and broken God's law. And so I tremble because I don't want to further wound victims of divorce in this room. I don't want to imply that perpetrators of divorce in this room who have repented and trusted in Christ are outside of the redemption and restoration of the all-sufficient cross of Jesus Christ. I don't want those whose, whose whose last resort and only option was or is divorce to feel like I'm heaping loads of guilt on them for doing so. And yet, on the other hand, I don't want to make it sound as if Though the topic of divorce is one that we should approach haphazardly or carelessly or lightly. Malachi 2.16 says that God hates divorce. He hates it. He hates it because of the carnage and wreckage that results. He hates it because it's not what he intended for his beloved creatures. He hates it because it doesn't reflect the gospel of grace that he ordained marriage to be a living parable of. God hates divorce. And so this is a weighty, fearful matter we're considering this morning, and I approach it with trembling for those reasons. But at the same time, I I approach this text and this subject matter resolutely and with a deep sense of duty. One reason being, I want to, if I, if I can, to protect the people of Veritas from divorce's wreckage and destructiveness. So we can't be ignorant of the fact that a, a little over 50% of the members at Veritas here are married. And it's safe to assume that more will be in the future. And we must not be ignorant of the fact that somewhere between 40 to 50% of marriages in the United States end in divorce. And if, and if the words of Jesus here and our understanding of them and applying them to our lives will prevent marriages from being needlessly destroyed, then I want to be as clear as possible about what Jesus is saying here and how we as a, a gospel people can apply his word to our lives regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot of pain and grief and hurt in this church and in this city and in our world that has resulted from divorce. And there's a high, high calling laid upon God's people to honor the covenant of marriage, to be faithful to their spouses, to honor their marital vows. And there's a high, high calling for us to help one another along in this high, high calling. And so with that said, let's read God's word here. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. 
Let's listen with reverence and joy for these words. These words come to us this morning as if the risen Lord Jesus were standing here speaking them to us today. These words come to us with that very same weight and authority. So let's listen with reverence and fear to the words of our Lord and Savior and Master. Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight this morning, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, so that your word may not return to you void, but accomplish the very purpose that you send it out to accomplish. May this happen by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As we come into week 37 of our time in Mark's gospel, we've seen Mark, his main theme recently shift from being the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, to Jesus being the suffering servant who came to give his life as a ransom for us because of our sins. And as that shift has has happened, we've begun to see Jesus moving toward Jerusalem. And here in verse 1 of Mark 10, Jesus has departed from Capernaum in the region of Galilee, and he's headed south, having gone through Samaria. And now he's in Judea, just beyond the Jordan, in the region where in Jerusalem lies waiting for him. And upon his arrival in Judea, we, we find a familiar scene. We've seen this throughout Mark's gospel. We find the Pharisees approach Jesus in order to arrest, arrest or uh, to test him, rather, to try to catch him in, in some sort of inconsistency in which they, you know, he might undermine the law of Moses. And here the question they bring to him concerns this matter of divorce which was a contested topic among the rabbis in that day, as we'll see. But then this occasion gives opportunity for Jesus teaching on marriage and divorce, both publicly to the Pharisees and all the people present, and then afterward, privately to his disciples as they meet in the house later on. 
And so this morning, we're, we're going to consider and unpack Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. And, and first, we just want to see what Jesus is saying here. And so we'll look at Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce explained. And then second, we want to ask questions in order to seek further understanding about how Jesus' teaching here in this particular situation relates to the rest of the Bible on the matter and how it might relate to some of our common questions today. And so second, we'll look at Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce examined. And then, lastly, we want to send you off with a a clear vision and exhortation of how we might live into Jesus' teaching on divorce today. And so we'll look, lastly, at Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce employed. Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce explained, examined, and employed. First, Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce explained. Now, One of the temptations for us when approaching a text like this is to right away begin with asking our kind of culturally sensitive questions or to defend our previously held positions on the matter or to rush whatever issues are stirring controversy on Twitter this week. But that's not where disciples of Jesus start. We we begin with what Jesus said, what the Bible says, and we can ask all of our questions and talk about our positions later. Yes, but we start with what the Bible says, and then we submit to whatever the Bible says. That's where we start. So what does Jesus say here? Let's explain it. The Pharisees come to Jesus with their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus, setting a good example for us pastors whenever people come to us with particular questions, he points them back to the Bible. He says, what did Moses command you? What did the scriptures say? What does God's law say? And to this question, the Pharisees answer, rightly, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now this is referring to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And what we find there is a bit of case law in the Old Covenant. Laws for particular situations, whenever they should arise. And I'll go ahead and read this for you because it's important for our understanding our text this morning. Listen to what this says, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, And she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, admittedly, this is an obscure text. Right? Again, it's, it's case law. It's for particular situations. And we don't know about all of the cultural, contextual issues surrounding this particular case law, but the general consensus for why this law was given and what makes the most sense is that this law was given as a way of preventing men from divorcing their wives haphazardly or carelessly. You know, if, if a man cannot remarry his ex-wife, perhaps he'll think twice about divorcing her. So the law is seen as a a means of protection for women and a motivation to keep men from divorcing their wives carelessly. However, in Jesus' day, many of the religious leaders had taken this text and they had so twisted and tortured it in order to make it an excuse to divorce their wives for almost any reason. Interestingly, there were actually two sides of this debate 
from two different rabbis, which took two different interpretations of this somewhat ambiguous phrase here in Deuteronomy 24.1, this phrase, some indecency, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. There was the school of Rabbi Shammai, which taught that the phrase meant some sort of sexual immorality. And then there was the school of Rabbi Hillel, which taught that some indecency meant almost anything that displeased the husband. And it seems that that Rabbi Hillel's position is actually what the Pharisees are asking Jesus about here. We see some evidence of, of this actually in Matthew's gospel as Matthew records the exact same story but with some additional details. You know, Mark's in kind of a hurry. He's not going to go through all the trouble of telling every bit of the conversation that happened, but Matthew's not in a rush. He's going to slow down and add a bit more detail, and that's what he does. He adds a bit more detail uh, in Matthew 19.3. When the Pharisees come to Jesus in order to ask this question and test him on this matter of divorce, they ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's, that's an important detail to add here because it, light, it enlightens us as to the nature of the question. They're asking Jesus about his interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. They're asking about whether or not he sides with the school of Hillel or Shammai. They're asking, do you interpret some indecency as pertaining to sexual immorality? Or do you interpret it as pertaining to just about anything that displeases the husband? And, and when I say anything, I mean almost anything. If you were to go back and read some of the rabbinical writings from the first century, you can find a long list of reasons given for why a man might justly divorce his wife. Here are some of the reasons. I'll read them to you. If she was unable to have children... If she had epilepsy, tetanus, warts, or leprosy. If the husband considered his wife lazy. If the husband didn't like the shape of his wife's head. If she had poor posture or thinning hair. If she had no eyebrows, one eyebrow, or if he deemed her eyebrows too bushy. If he didn't like the shape of her nose or her eyes. This is interesting. If her eyes were too big, too little, or too watery. If her ears were too big or floppy, if she had an overbite or an underbite, if she went outside with her hair unbound, if she spun cloth in the street, if she went to visit her parents against her husband's wishes, if she burned his supper, if they weren't having sex as much as the husband desired. And there were more reasons. Some of the rabbis, some of the Pharisees, some of the scribes, they had so twisted the word of God to excuse divorce in so many trivial cases that they had completely lost and were undermining God's purpose for marriage in the first place. Much like our culture today. They were dishonoring God. They were hurting women and children. They were abusing God's good gift of marriage. So back to Mark 10 here. Notice how Jesus, he so wisely does not get bogged down into a debate about rabbinical traditions or hermeneutical methods or semantical debates. No, no, he, instead, he reframes this question to not be centered around the question of when divorce is permissible according to a couple of rabbis, but instead what the purpose and design of marriage is according to God's creational design. That's a better approach to the debate. And so he responds in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. He says, this is a concession given through Moses because of the presence of sin in the heart of humanity. It's something permitted in the law because of your sin and hardness of heart, a hard-heartedness that is so on display in all of your excuses for divorce. He goes on in verse 6. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's a better approach to the debate. Who designed marriage? And what did he design it to be? Who designed marriage? God designed marriage. He's the one you ought to be looking to here. You ought to be looking to his word first and foremost and his design for it. If you want to find the definition of marriage in the first place, look to the word of God. And what you find when you look is is that marriage is not a discardable contractual agreement that you just break on a whim, making it legitimate with some flimsy certificate. Marriage is not so easily broken. It is a covenantal one flesh union established by none other than God himself. And so to break apart a marriage is to break apart what God has joined together. And that is a grievous thing. Therefore, let not man separate what God has joined together. And then as we've often seen in Mark's gospel, After a more kind of public teaching on a particular matter, Jesus and his disciples are later in private in a house alone. And when there, the disciples probe into Jesus' teaching a little more, and he provides them with some additional instruction and guidance. So you look at verse 10 there. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, at first glance, that statement seems to forbid any and all divorce, as well as any and all remarriage after divorce, and it seems to consider any and all remarriage after divorce adultery. However, this very same statement, as it's recorded in Matthew, again, adds a bit of extra detail that helps us better understand Jesus' words here. Find that in Matthew 19.9. There, Matthew records Jesus as saying, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There, Matthew records Jesus as having given an exception to his prohibition against divorce. Divorce, while grievous, while tragic, while never commanded, is permitted, Jesus says, in cases of sexual immorality. In Mark He doesn't include this exception, probably because he assumes his audience will just understand this as a given. Furthermore, again, Mark's kind of a, his his terse, his fast-paced way of writing just leads him to not include a lot of nuances or exceptions in his writing. But Matthew includes this exception clause of sexual immorality. And what does sexual immorality mean? The Greek word is the word porneia, and it's a pretty comprehensive word. It's used throughout the New Testament to speak of differing kinds of sexual behavior and acts. The sin of adultery would certainly qualify. If someone is married and they enter into a sexual relationship with someone else, that is adultery and that would qualify under this category. Additionally, if you look at the context of of Deuteronomy 24, we might also conclude that being sexually active prior to marriage might qualify as well. Of course, we, we might want to clarify that that today, if your spouse was previously sexually active and was open about it before the wedding, that that ceases to qualify as a legitimate reason for divorce. Sexual immorality would also include not just sexual intercourse, rigidly defined with someone other than one's spouse, but 
any kind of sexual act with anyone other than one's spouse. Porneia includes all kinds of acts and behavior. It, it includes various kinds of sexual acts between two people that are not married to each other. It includes incest, homosexuality, prostitution, sexual harassment, abuse of minors, indecent exposure, and more. Those are all behaviors and acts which violate the one flesh union of marriage and therefore qualify as a legitimate reason for divorce, Jesus says. And so what he's saying here considering in light of the whole context, is that a certificate of divorce is not what makes a divorce legitimate. A legal document is not what makes a divorce legitimate. The reason for the divorce must be legitimate. The covenant of marriage must have already been broken for the divorce to be legitimate. The marital vows must have already been broken for the divorce to be legitimate. A legal document does not make divorce legitimate. The grounds for divorce must be legitimate. Otherwise, to remarry is to commit adultery, Jesus says. And that's how he dresses remarriage here. In Israel in those days, it was just assumed that if you were divorced, that you would remarry. But Jesus says that if the divorce was invalid, then the individual is still married and the second marriage is adulterous. It's a violation of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery and is thus prohibited for Christ's disciples. Because Christ's disciples are those who so value marriage as God's precious gift and design for his creatures. That is Jesus' teaching on divorce explained. Now we examine it. Let's ask some questions. I want to be careful here. I, you know, I've read a lot about this matter. I've read multiple positions on the matter. I've, I've read a lot about the historical context and the differing positions about this and differing traditions and throughout church history. I have so many books on this matter. But you know, if all you're doing is, is reading about it in books, it's just abstract and theoretical and easy. But for some of us in this room, this is not abstract. This is not theoretical. Some of us have have specific questions because we have very real and specific experiences with divorce. And we want to live lives that honor and glorify Christ. And so I want to ask some questions, and I want to be sensitive here, but I also want to be clear. The first question that will likely come up anytime we talk about Christian ethics surrounding divorce, remarriage, marriage, is a question like this, shouldn't this just be between the married couple? Shouldn't this just be between the two people who are married and considering divorce or remarriage or whatever? You know, we, we, we live in a highly individualistic age and culture. We live in an age and culture that we might deem radically individualistic. And this affects us all, whether we realize it or not. You know, I often quote Tim Keller on this matter when he once said that culture is kind of like rain. Even if you wear a raincoat, rain boots, get an umbrella, you're still going to get wet. And with that, the the culture of radical individualism in our age has affected us all in some measure. And it's it's true in our particular church as well. I, I don't want to be contrary or confrontational here, but it's just a fact that most often when, when people like us go about making major life decisions or working through difficult questions or issues in life, for most of us, we can tend to approach those kinds of situations in isolation and then just later inform our covenant community, after the decision has already been made. Rather than working through the issues and questions and decisions with those that we're in covenant community with. And that's not unique to us or to our church. It's a cultural thing, Western culture in general. 
American culture, more specifically, is highly, radically individualistic. Community, corporate solidarity, relational vulnerability are not things that we naturally do well. Radical autonomy, rugged individualism, being anti-authority, that's, that's as American as apple pie. And so when we come to this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage, a natural question that comes up is why the heck is it anyone else's business? And this is one place where our worldview and ethics are at odds with the New Testament worldview and ethics. Remember here in Mark, we're we're in a series of passages wherein Jesus is giving instructions on Christian discipleship, and here those instructions are addressing the matter of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so as a matter of discipleship, listen, if you are a baptized disciple of Jesus Christ and a member of a local church, you've committed to following the way and teaching of Jesus, and you've invited a community of believers to hold you accountable to that commitment. And according to Jesus here, if you're married, your marriage is a crucial part of your discipleship and therefore absolutely the business of your covenant community. You're not an island. You are a member of the body of Christ, connected to the whole, inextricably bound to the whole. When you were baptized, you made vows to the people of God. Every week when you receive the Lord's Supper, you are making vows to the people of God and are declaring that your discipleship is the business of this covenant community. Your marriage is their business. Your romantic life is their business. Your sex life, in an appropriate way, is their business. That's what you've signed up for as a disciple of Jesus Christ and as a member of Veritas Community Church. I'm not even talking here about marriage and divorce and remarriage of unbelievers out there in the world. We can talk about that too. We can talk about why divorce is bad for society and and leads to instability and poverty and brokenness and all of that, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage in the church amongst disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you're part of that community, then you've committed to not withholding one aspect of your life from the lordship of Jesus Christ, and you've invited your covenant community to hold you to that commitment. And so should this just be between the married couple? Who else's business is it? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's Jesus' business and his church's business. Therefore, we don't make decisions concerning marriage and divorce and remarriage apart from submitting to the teaching of Jesus and with the help from our church family. So then, when is divorce permitted biblically? Decisions regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage are Jesus' business and the church's business if you're a Christian, then when is divorce permitted? Remember, it's never commanded, but at times it is allowed. It is a concession made in God's word. And one such instance that divorce is permitted, as we've already seen, is when one spouse is sexually immoral. Of course, one is not obligated to divorce their spouse when they're sexually immoral, but one is permitted to. But are there other instances in which divorce is is permitted, according to Scripture? And to be be frank, part of me struggles with wanting to address such questions and because of how quickly conversations can can devolve into abstraction when there are serious issues that actually affect people's lives. How quickly these these questions can devolve into like, you know, the religious leaders in Jesus' day finding excuses to divorce one's spouse when instead the attitude should be one of seeking to honor their spouse in marriage and their marital vows. And yet on the other hand, 
asking and trying to answer such questions really can be practical matters of discipleship. You know, we, I assume that, that if you're asking these kind of questions, you want to please God. And, and, and we might wonder how we can please Him in our specific situations or in our counsel to others. And so as we seek to discuss this, please allow me, I'm not going to get too specific. If you have any questions today or in the future, please know you can always talk to myself or one of the elders. We're here for you. Please always search the scriptures and seek the help of, of, of your church family and their counsel in considering really specific situations and unique questions. But with that said, 1 Corinthians 7 might help shed some light on another time when divorce is indeed permissible. 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul is giving some general instructions on marriage. And and you can turn there if you want. The Apostle Paul, he begins in verses 1 to 5 by telling husbands and wives to give each other their their conjugal rights. He then, in verses 6 to 9, addresses how single or widowed people in their congregation ought to approach marriage. And then in verses 10 to 16, he turns to address those members of the Corinthian church who are married to non-Christians. And of course, Paul exhorts elsewhere to not enter into marriage with non-believers. But for those who are already married to non-believers, he gives this instruction. He instructs them to not seek divorce. As long as their non-believing spouse is fine with remaining married, the Christian should remain married to them. And and you can see why this would be relevant, right? I'm sure it was common then as it was today that when a person becomes a Christian, their non-believing spouse can at times be somewhat unsettled by that. And at times they may even desire to, to leave their newly converted spouse. And in that case, Paul says, In verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, that if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, Paul is saying that if an unbelieving spouse wants to abandon or leave or desert or divorce their believing spouse, then the believing spouse is not enslaved. Now that at least means that the believing spouse is not obligated to seek reconciliation and is indeed permitted to divorce. But, but what does that mean for situations wherein divorce is biblically permitted? I think that means that one such instance in which divorce is permitted is when one's unbelieving spouse is choosing to abandon or divorce them. If one's unbelieving spouse is either leaving or abandoning them or divorcing them, then Paul is saying that that believer is not enslaved. Or is not enslaved. They're free to divorce and probably free to remarry. Now, what constitutes leaving or abandoning one spouse is not exactly clear here. So again, I struggle with wanting to get too specific. But again, this might be something that members of Eritras are practically struggling with now or perhaps will be in the future. So let me offer some examples of what might constitute leaving or abandonment. If your spouse just ups and leaves... That constitutes abandonment. If your spouse has subjected you to an extreme form of abuse, that, I believe, constitutes abandonment. If your spouse has participated in habits and patterns of abuse, that, I believe, constitutes abandonment. If your spouse has continually displayed habits and patterns of dishonesty and deception, that, I believe, constitutes abandonment. 
If a spouse grievously, decisively, or habitually breaks their marital vows to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richness or poor, for sickness and health, to love and to cherish until parted by death, that constitutes abandonment. I think, if I'm understanding the Apostle Paul correctly here, that that is a legitimate reason for divorce. Sexual immorality and abandonment or desertion are the reasons given in the New Testament for legitimate divorce. Now, another question that might come up is, is remarriage after divorce always adultery? You know, Jesus says here, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Does that mean that remarriage after divorce is always adultery? Sometimes this text is interpreted that way. But is that what Jesus is saying here? As we saw earlier, it's, it's helpful to remember that in Jesus' context, divorce always carried with it the expectation of remarriage in those days. It was written into the certificate of divorce that the person was free to remarry. And here, Jesus is not saying that there are no situations in which divorce is permissible. He's simply saying that it's very seldom permissible, and so divorce shouldn't be approached carelessly or lightly. But in situations where divorce is permitted, it's safe to assume that remarriage is indeed permitted as well. Because if the divorce is not legitimate, then the marriage still exists, therefore remarriage is not permitted. But if the divorce is legitimate, then the marriage no longer exists and remarriage is therefore permitted. So is remarriage after divorce adultery? Maybe, but not necessarily. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 19.9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So according to the logic of Jesus' statement here, if someone's divorce was not legitimate, then the first marriage is still binding and remarriage is adultery. But if the divorce is legitimate, then the first marriage is truly dissolved and remarriage is not adultery. Of course, that brings up another question about whether or not a second marriage after an illegitimate divorce is perpetually adulterous. In other words, if, if someone enters into a second marriage after divorce that was not legitimate, are the two people in that second marriage continually or perpetually living in a state of adultery? I would say no. The second marriage may initially be adulterous. But after the second marriage is consummated, it is officially sealed as a new one flesh union, and therefore the first one flesh union is dissolved. And therefore to seek another divorce in order to go back to one's first spouse or remain single would not be the righteous thing to do, but would instead violate the clear instruction of Jesus here to avoid divorce whenever possible. And we could exhaust ourselves all day by asking very specific questions about Jesus' teaching on divorce here. Some of the questions might be legitimate questions coming from a desire to honor Jesus and his teaching. Some might come from a place of genuine curiosity. Some might descend into the depths of theoretical abstraction. Some might come from a place of hardness of heart, like the Pharisees in Mark 10 here. Whatever the motivation for such questions, it's best for us to not simply approach the teaching of Jesus here as teaching for specific situations wherein divorce or remarriage are legitimate or illegitimate. It's best for us to really try to understand the heart behind what Jesus is saying here. And the heart of what Jesus is saying here is that marriage 
The one flesh covenant union between a man and a woman is to be held in high honor amongst disciples of Jesus, those disciples that he purchased with his very own blood. That's really how we ought to employ the teaching of Jesus here. As a people of God, we have to hold marriage in high honor. If you're married, you ought to strive to be faithful to your spouse in all things because you don't belong to yourself. You belong, first and foremost, to Jesus Christ. He purchased you with His very own blood. And secondarily, you belong to your spouse. You have committed yourself to them with the vows that you made on the day of your wedding. You have vowed to have and to hold from your spouse from that day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish until death do you part. You made that promise to your spouse before God and before the congregation gathered there. If you're not married, perhaps you will be in the future. You shouldn't enter into discussions about marriage lightly or carelessly, recognizing that marriage is a weighty thing. It's a sacred vocation. And that if if you sign up for that sacred vocation, you are going to be held accountable to fulfill it by Christ and His church. If you're not married and you plan on being married, you should recognize that being faithful to your spouse starts even now. Being sexually faithful, we briefly touched on it earlier, but being sexually faithful to your spouse is not just something that you're called to from your wedding day forward, but it's something you're called to even before you meet your spouse. You're supposed to be holding yourself, withholding yourself for them. And I say that not to shame you if you fall short. There's real forgiveness and restoration for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I also exhort you from this day forward to see your sexuality as being reserved for the person you're going to marry. For those who are not married and perhaps don't plan on getting married, recognize that you're not exempt from this. You belong to this covenant community. Some of your brothers and sisters here are married and part of your duty as a member of this church then is to hold them accountable to their wedding vows. You're to hold them accountable to being faithful to their spouses and upholding their marital vows. You share in this duty to hold in high honor and esteem the divinely ordained institution of marriage. You share in that sacred duty. We all, every single one of us, as disciples of Jesus Christ and members of His body, are called to make God's love visible to this world by honoring the covenant of marriage. That's what the, uh, the ultimate purpose of marriage is, is to make God's love visible in the world. And I want you to see that the church, this new covenant society, is actually the only community qualified to do such a thing. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees here in Mark 10. He said that it was because of their hardness of heart that Moses allowed them to divorce. And remember the entirety of the scriptural context of what's taking place here. Jesus has come to establish his church as a community of people who no longer suffer from this hardness of heart. The thing that so plagued the people of Israel. His new covenant society is not a community of people with hard hearts. It's this community whom God has given and fulfilled his promise of Ezekiel 36, 26. He said there, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft, tender heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God 
has fulfilled that promise in Christ and given us the Holy Spirit and made us into this people, this community of tender-hearted obedience to God's will for our lives. He's ushered in this era of the new covenant and he's made us a people of the new creation who highly esteem God and his will for our lives. And that's not to say that divorce never happens in the church. But it is to say that because of this transformation of our hearts by Christ in the new covenant, we don't approach marriage and divorce and remarriage carelessly. Rather, we hold this covenant, this one flesh union of marriage, in high honor and high regard. Truly, what motivates and, and drives our holding marriage in high honor in the church is what we're told the ultimate aim and purpose of marriage is in the New Testament. The ultimate aim and purpose of marriage is not self-fulfillment. It's not just the, the health and continuance of society. It's, it's not just companionship and comfort and channeling sexual desire in a healthy way. Those are biblical reasons for marriage, but they're not ultimate. According to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 22-33, the ultimate aim and purpose of marriage is actually to show forth, to be a picture of, to be an illustration of the truth of the gospel. It's to be a picture of the one flesh union between Christ and His beloved church. It's to be a parable of the most beautiful love story ever told, the story of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, left his home and came to seek and rescue his most beloved bride. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so at the cost of his own pain and body and life. He gave up his life. He was tortured and died. He sacrificed himself so that we, his bride, would be freed from the slavery and devastation of our hard-heartedness and sin. He did so so that we might be rescued into this one flesh union with him. Now, I want you to recognize... We'll never be the kind of disciples we're called to be, and we'll never approach marriage in the way that we should, and we'll never be the kind of spouses that we're called to be until our hearts are so melted and transformed by that most radical love, the love of our bridegroom. Marriage is so hard. So often it's as Stanley Hauerwas once put it, just learning to love and care for the stranger who lies next to you in bed. So often it's giving up your preferences and desires. So often it's daily routines and monotony. It's, it's, it's being grievously wounded and sinned against and through tears forgiving the other as you've been forgiven in Christ. It's sinning against and, and wounding the other and asking their forgiveness. It's, it's fights and misunderstandings and reconciliation. It's hard. And so what drives us, what motivates us to keep going, what drives us to persevere, what motivates us to trek on through the muck and mire and difficulty of married life, what drives us is being so satisfied by the love of our bridegroom. It's being so fulfilled by his love that you can pour yourself out in love for your spouse. It's being so amazed and thankful that you've been forgiven by God in Christ, that you can be tender-hearted and forgiving towards your spouse, even when they sin against you grievously. 
It's recognizing that even when your spouse is not being the spouse you want them to be or that God has called them to be, that Jesus is always the heavenly spouse that you actually need. And so you therefore don't actually need to depend on your earthly spouse to fulfill you and make you happy. It's realizing that Jesus is faithful to you. It's realizing that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he's faithful to you, even though you've been unfaithful to him again and again and again and again. He's always faithful to you. He never divorces his elect bride. It's your heart being melted by his great love for you and his great sacrifice for you that empowers you and inspires you to love and to sacrifice and to make his love visible in this world. Friends, that's why we hold marriage in high honor because our bridegroom has died for us. He's washed away our sin. He's made us his own and he'll be faithful to us forever. So may our community reflect that love. May the marriages in our community reflect that love. May we approach marriage and divorce and remarriage as disciples of Jesus Christ, not hard-hearted, but tender-hearted. Not approaching marriage carelessly, but carefully. And all so that we may show forth the love of our bridegroom to one another and to a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Father, seal this word upon our hearts by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit that we may live for you utterly and totally and completely. Press into our hearts the the reality that we have been so well loved by Jesus Christ so that we can move toward one another, so that we can move toward our spouses, so that we can move toward other church members, so that we can move toward the people of this world the kind of love that we have been shown in Christ. As we come to the table now, may this be to us a sign and a seal of our redemption. May this be to us a unique experience of our oneness with Jesus Christ as he has promised it to be so that we might be strengthened for the task and mission ahead. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.